warnings from Israel's history. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptised into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 of them died. We should not test the Lord, as some of them did, and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples, and were written down as warnings for us, on whom the fulfilment of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Therefore, my friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we, who are many, are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean then that a sacrifice offered to an idol is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. But the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Now everything is permissible. But not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything is constructive. Nobody should seek his own good, but the good of others. Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If some unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. But if anyone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it, both for the sake of the man who told you and for conscience's sake. The other man's conscience, I mean, not yours. For why should my freedom be judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? So, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble 
whether Jews, Greeks, or the Church of God, even as I try to please everybody in every way. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. This is the word of the Lord. So, um, at first glance, uh, that chapter... Um, uh, as you read it, you may be going, "Well, this, what did I just read?" And because um, there's a there's a lot in it, lots of different things going on. And if that wasn't enough, that was my mistake that I managed to put the different version on the screen. Martin had the right version; I put the wrong one. So you were reading one thing and hearing the other, just to confuse you even more. Sorry about that. Uh, that was not intentional. Um, but there there is a fair bit in this chapter, and and at, even at uh, if you were to sit down and read it, you kind of go, w- w- where is this going? Um, it's, uh, it brings to close the, um, what Paul was talking about for a couple of chapters now. And uh, uh, Paul, uh, if you remember a couple of weeks back, of, or a number of times actually, I mentioned that Paul's responding to a letter. Paul's actually, uh, in writing this letter, is responding to a letter that the Corinthians have written him. And we haven't, we haven't got the context of that letter. We haven't got that other letter to go, well, what is he actually responding to? So we just read it as, as if Paul's sort of talking about some random issues, but it's not. It's a response. And he's good at taking detours, going, okay, let me respond to this question. And while we're talking about that, let's kind of detour off here a little bit because he likes to talk about what are some other motivations here or maybe you're asking this question, but I want to actually address this thing underneath it or whatever. But in this chapter, he's bringing to a close a couple of key issues. And so um, if you didn't pick it up, there's really two sections in that reading we just read. One where he's addressing the question around them going to temples and eating food sacrificed to idols and, and, and being uh, participants, in a, in a sense, in, in, in other religions that are going on. And then in the next, and then in the latter part about, well, what about meat from the marketplace? What about meat that may have been given to an idol or sacrificed to an idol or used in another kind of worship? Um, and he's addressing two different things. Um, so I'm, I'm, that's what I'd like to unpack today. Let me uh, pray briefly and then, uh, and then I, we'll, we'll talk about that. So Father, as we approach this, this scripture this morning, which um, just in one reading and one glance is difficult to, to, to digest everything that's in there, I pray, Father, that you would help us to see uh, what is your message, your, your, uh, your word in all of this for us today? Uh, not just uh, 2,000 years later, but um, for us specifically as a community, as a, as a church family, um, in, in this moment, in this day, in this season. Um, Father, thank you uh, for your Holy Spirit who is here with us, who seeks to... Uh, enlighten us, uh, bring bring to life, bring um, uh, shed light on your rhema word, your your personal word and message for us. So open our hearts, um, open our ears this morning. Uh, may you remind us that we've been gifted with the Holy Spirit to be able to know and be connected to your heart, Father God. Thank you for that privilege through Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So uh, the first, there was 33 verses in that chapter, and the first 22 verses are sort of one, one section. 
And uh, if, if you remember back to the first few verses, Paul starts by referring to the Old Testament and talking about the time when, with Moses and the Israelites. And he's essentially making the point, it's the same God. He even says these this fascinating things like that the rock, the spiritual rock they in the Old Testament, back in Moses' time, drank from was Christ. It's, it's, it's an, an amazing uh, thing that Paul's saying about it's the, it's the same God, even the same Jesus back then and for you now post-Jesus. It's easy to think, even maybe a bit subconsciously as a, as a Christian, um, that in the Old Testament there was this sort of angry God. Like, you know, especially after Genesis 2 when everything went bad, it's like God is, was angry and vindictive and it's like if you don't do what I say, you're going to get punished. And, and then Jesus, it, this is what I'm, I'm not saying we think this, but it can be easy to fall into this thinking just a little bit. It's like that was the God then and then Jesus came along and he kind of calmed the Father down a bit, right? That's like, well, it's okay, now I'm here, I'll die for the people's sins and then we'll have grace and mercy and now things will change. Except in Acts chapter 5 when those two people who did the wrong thing died, God kind of forgot who he was for a second and then he moved on. It's like that, it's, we can get confused. Is it the same God? Paul is making the point. Yeah, same God, same grace and mercy, even the same Jesus present with with the people back then. Um, And what happened for them was they experienced God's grace and mercy, not in that case through the cross of Christ, but in like the exodus and the provision of, of food and all, all the ways God was graceful and merciful to them. And some trusted him. So we read the book of Hebrews and it says how you know, all of the Moses and Abraham and Enoch and various people who will be saved through Christ because they trusted God, but then others didn't. Many of the, Hebrew, the, the Israelites at the time, they didn't trust God and God was not pleased. And Paul's making the point, you don't want to be like that. When it's not like you have a different God now and a different kind of grace and mercy. And, and so you can take this for granted any more than they can. You don't want to be like those Israelites. And he, and he unequivocally says the answer to the question they've asked about worshipping the other temples and stuff and says idolatry is out. Idolatry is is, is not. And he's, he's saying, um, not just with idolatry, but there are certain things that are total no-go zones in the Christian life. Um, so he's talking about uh, absolutes, lines in the sand that God has drawn in the first 22 chapters. The essence of the Corinthian argument was, we follow Jesus now, we're baptized, we participate in communion, all of that. So we're sorted no matter what. There's no power in these other practices. We know the true God. Those things are, are just false, nothing stuff. So, so we're good. No matter, doesn't matter if we go to those temples. And Paul's saying, that's not so. There's a line and you can cross that line. And one of the reasons is because, this is kind of full on, because demons are behind those lifeless idols at the temples that you want to hang out with with your friends. And, and so, for example, we, we take this bread and this cup on a, in a celebration called the Lord's Supper or Communion or the Eucharist, as many names, and, and we say that by this is, this is just bread. Like there's no, it's lifeless, innocent, it's, it's bread, and this is just juice or in some churches wine, um, but by participating in a celebration where these represent something and we remember the, that we've been, um, that, that we've 
participated in a sense in in Christ's body and Christ's blood and we remember the sacrifice he made for us and this is an act of worship to him we we're worshiping um the god th- through the, the using these these symbols and and so Paul's saying so you can't then go and say that these lifeless things over here these lifeless idols uh, are of no significance what we do with them because they, they, they too may be connected with some other spiritual being. Do we really want any part in that? And, and I think it, it helps us to, to see we make a big mistake when we think nothing else in our world holds any power over us if we give some of our attention and devotion to it, even if it's a lifeless thing. Um, God has drawn lines in the sand to protect us from giving our devotion to something which at best fails us and at worst enslaves us. And that may include things that behind which lie demonic powers that are subtly lying to us. Now, this is a big, this is a big topic. Like, whoa, 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 let's, you know, hang on a second. What, what, what exactly do demonic powers lie behind? But whatever you might think about this, is it so hard to believe that behind things in our world that get worshipped, um, people give their whole attention and devotion and life to, um, that behind some of these things could be a demonic entity subtly lying to people and stealing their joy as they seek fulfilment in that lifeless thing. Why else would people get so wrapped up in something that is just an activity, whether it be CrossFit or uh, or, or, or computer games or, or, um, or a job or whatever else it might be. Um, now, whatever you might think about that, you know, well, I, don't, I wouldn't say there's any demonicness behind any of that, Luke. Whatever, that, that aside, the point is that God says there's things, there are things, there are lines that you just can't do and expect it not to affect our relationship with him as the heavenly father. Why is this? Does this not make God, not a good, good, loving father, but does this not make God a jealous, selfish, it's my way or the highway kind of God? No, not at all. It's, this is about the na- our nature, how he has made us. We are beings with free will. Free will. That, that means we have, we're not robots. We're not like pre-programmed to trust in God because if we have no choice, then we can't choose to trust God or not, to love God or not, which means if if we have no choice, there is no love. You have to be able to choose for it to actually be love. Um, But of course, because we have choice, that means there's another choice. The other choice is, is we see it in the Garden of Eden, but believe that God is loving and trustworthy or believe, as the serpent said, that God is a liar. Uh, um, and, and choose what we feel is best for us. If that choice didn't exist, th- then there's no love because we don't have choice. And so we learn from the, the garden and, and, and through the scriptures that sin is not doing wrong stuff. <laughs> that's that's a, a very weak definition of sin. Sin is choosing not to trust God alone because that severs the relationship with trusted the other way, something or someone other than God. So that's in that first 22 verses of this chapter, 
God's saying there are absolutes. There are lines in the sand. This, for example, idol worship. God's saying it's just not on to go and participate in that because you're deviating where your trust is placed. So that's the first 22 verses. Then we jump over to the second section, the last 12 verses. And this is about freedom. Um, so there's this question, this other question of, well, not just about can we go to the temples, the Corinthians, there's these other temples around, but what about the, the meat in the marketplace? Uh, you know, we're not sure where it's come from. Has have people sacrificed this animal to a, to a demonic god or you know, what's going on? So what about the meat in the marketplace? And Paul's basically saying, look, there's, there's a freedom here. Obviously, if, if you ask and you're, or you're told that this meat has come from a place and you don't want to participate in that, obviously stay clear. But if it's, there's, you're not sure, your conscience is clear in that you ought to do, you, you, you're, you're free. There's a freedom. There's a choice to it. But use that freedom. Use that choice you have. Not necessarily it's like um, do this, don't do this, but you have a freedom now. You have a choice. Use that freedom in such a way that you serve others and love others there's lots of things in the christian life that are permissible for those for who trust in jesus i mean think the garden of eden again it's like don't eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil but like the rest of the garden enjoy you have choice you have freedom so many things are not out of bounds but the question is how do we use that freedom to serve others to love others in particular Paul says, so that they may be saved. The greatest love is to love others into God's love. And Jesus, of course, is the greatest example of, of, of using our freedom. He used his freedom not for his own benefit, but for um, the, the, that of others, even dying so that others could be saved. And one example that came to mind as I was thinking about this was Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, Garden of Gethsemane when uh, he says, could I not at this very moment, if I wanted to, call down legions of angels? And I, I, was, I realized the other day, one angel was strong and powerful enough in, earlier in the Bible to wipe out 185,000 enemies. A lead, legions of angels, Jesus was saying, look, if I want to, I could deal with this mess of humanity right now, go back and be with the Father and the Holy Spirit, and we'd be happy for eternity. But instead, Jesus chose to act out of love towards us and go to the cross. That's what he did with his freedom, with his choice. And so now as one who is safe in Christ, you and I, we, we trust him alone. We know there are lines in the sand, not serving other gods, not crossing any line. We understand we must not cross, not dishonoring God. But then how do we use our freedom in all other things? Is it to love and to serve others, all to this end? So two points. There are absolutes. Trust only in God. And then there are freedoms. Use it for the good of others. Um, typically, some of us struggle with one or the other a bit more. We lean one way or the other a bit more. We struggle, maybe you struggle with the absolutes a little bit more. Um, and like, well, there's things that it, I've heard people say there's lines drawn in the sand, this is not acceptable for a Christian, but, I, but you totally get the way we should use our freedom. You might say, bottom line, we've got to love and serve others. 
I mean, bottom line is how, how we reflect the love of God, how, how we serve others um, well, in, we use our life and all of the freedoms and all of the choice that we have the, to the best of our ability. And that, and that part of it's great, but the problem is that we see in the Bible that the heart can be deceived. What defines the benefit of others? What's actually most loving? On the other hand, some of us lean in a way that we're more aware and serious about the absolutes. It's like God is serious about us worshipping only him. He's a jealous God, and and we we need to live in his ways. And you have a healthy fear of God um, or or revering of of God, reverence. but then out of a desire, maybe out of a desire to obey God, it's easy to then neglect how we use all that freedom we have in other things for the good of others because we're just going, well, we just want to get it right. We just want to do what God wants of us, and that's, that's what's important. You see, do you, am, I, am I making sense here? <laughs> there's absolutely, there's like lines in the sand, and then there's freedom in a whole heap of other things. And... It's, it's much more subtle than some people are on this side and some people are on this side, I, I get that. Um, but we can lean one way or the other in certain issues and we draw the line in different places as to what's a freedom and what's not. And here's the reason I, I bring that out and what I, I sense that this passage might help us to see is that this is, this is us, this is the community, this is the people of God, the, the, our faith family. And, and what I... Personally, what I see at the Billabong is all of it. All of that uh, diversity and, and leaning one way and leaning the other. And in some things, I think maybe this and other things here and, and, and kind of focusing more on this side or focusing more on this side. And, and that, that uh, difference and those, those, that variety of, of approaches to the Christian life it keeps me up at night sometimes um, because the risk of this kind of all of us leaning one way or the other is, is explosion. Like conflict with one another if the focus is on, well, who's right and who's wrong? And, well, I really think this is important, but they seem to think not and and, and, and that's, that's the risk. However, I, I'm being challenged to realize that it means there's far more potential, far more potential for a healthy, vibrant, thriving, alive in Jesus, more like Jesus church, if this mix and this diversity exists than if we are a church that basically leans all the way over here and basically says the law of God and what God's word says, not not what God's word says, but what where God draws the line, let's focus on that. Or a church that leans all the way over this side and says, you know what, God's given us abundant freedom in pretty much every area to just go and do good. Because in those kinds of churches, which I don't think we are, the potential is to, to think that Jesus is pretty much like us, and that's about it. Like, this, this, is, this is how things work. Um, there was a study done, well, not, not a study as such, but there was a, there's a professor who, in his first year class, 
training Bible college students. He got them to, um, to fill out two surveys. One was a survey about themselves um, and how they saw themselves, and the other was a survey about Jesus and how they saw Jesus. And inevitably, what, what would always happen in those surveys is the way the students filled out the survey about Jesus and the one about themselves was pretty much the same. <laughs> so in other words, they thought that Jesus was pretty much like them. Now, I'm sure we wouldn't be that way, but the potential when we have this mix and, well, we, we, we lean this way, we lean this way, um, is, is for conflict, is for a bit of explosion and, and tension, but the potential is also for humility in a church where some of us lean this way and some of us see it this way. The potential is for, for humility. How do you challenge me to become more like Jesus? In the, the reading, um, I purposely left out from the reading that Martin did one verse from this section um, to, to make this point because it's the, the first verse of the next chapter. We read all of chapter 10. But verse chapter 11, verse 1, it's widely agreed, should have been in chapter 10. And the, the verse says this, imitate, Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. You've probably heard it, may, may have heard the, the verse before. Paul is saying Jesus did not this, this is how Jesus is. Jesus did not dispute God's ways, didn't cross those lines. He said, this is where God has drawn the line. But with everything else, he didn't then use his freedom for his, his own good. He lived for the sake of others and their salvation. Jesus got the line right, and then Jesus used the freedom well. And Paul says, this is how Jesus lived. This is how I live as I imitate him. You do the same as you imitate me. But we can read this. Verse sometimes as Paul, and he said something similar earlier in 1 Corinthians. We can read this as Paul saying, Jesus was right, therefore I'm right, therefore become less like yourself and more like me. I don't think that's the tone of what Paul's saying at all. I think really what he's saying is this. I need to become less like Paul and more like Jesus. And I want you to be like this too as you observe me. When I look at other Christians, essentially when I look at one of you, there's always something about you or you or you or whoever it is, a brother or sister in Christ, that is more Christ-like than I am. I can think about it the other way. Well, there's something about me that's more Christ-like. No, there's always something about you that's more Christ-like than I am. And if I can learn from that, rather than criticize your flaws, then I think there can be massive steps forward in the body of Christ. And this is something I feel God's really teaching me and challenging me on. I don't feel like I do this very well. What, if, you, if you find someone, um, if, if, if you find some people in this community take God's law more seriously and God's, God's boundaries and what we should and shouldn't do, where God draws the line as followers of Christ. They really seem to revere God in that sense. And yet, in your opinion, they don't seem to really love and serve others well. What might God be trying to show you? Is he trying to say, well, that person needs to be more like you, or maybe there's something in their life that you can learn from? If you find some people around you in the body of Christ 
are doing lots of good and reaching people you're not reaching, but they seem to be into some stuff that worries you. What might God be trying to show you? Is it that they need a change or something you can learn? These are really challenging questions, uh, as I said, for, for me, because my usual thinking is, well, I, I need to do the correcting, but that's often pride and insecurity, if I'm honest. Humility, Christ-likeness says, I think there's something in their life I really need to take note of. And look, I'm not discounting here um, correction and challenge and all that in the setting of community and church leadership and all of the, all of that stuff. We've heard about a lot of that in early, earlier in the in the, the book as we've been studying Corinthians. But the attitude of humility humility is the potential when we sit alongside brothers and sisters who think a little differently and approach things a little differently and have different passions and different wirings and, and a different upbringing and a different background in their approach to how we follow Jesus. Paul says, whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. I'm not seeking my, he also says, I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved, before he then says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. I think that these three things, what, whatever we do, do it for the glory of God. The building up of one another and the loving of those outside the church so they may be saved. I think if, if not very, very intertwined, they're almost one in the same. That as we seek to glorify God in all things, we, we seek to build one another up so that we best love those outside the church into God's love that they may be saved. They're not disconnected from one another, those things. And uh, at lunch last week, we talked about, you know, one of the core values has always been that, that authentic relationship and community and, 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 and being alongside one another. We might put it like this. We do life together. Why? Because if we don't, we sort of just stay in that way where we go, well, I, I'm comfortable with this group of people, but I'm not so comfortable with this group of people. But if we do life together, we're challenging one another to grow more and more like Jesus so that we'll be better at loving those outside the church. We do life together. Um, and so I want to do something just to finish this morning. Um, I want you to, to uh, look around the room for, for, a sec, for a few seconds. I just want you to observe the people in the room, the people around you this morning. Just, just have a look to see who's here this morning. And, and don't worry, I'm not going to be asking you to go and give someone a hug or do, do anything like that. Okay, don't, just, just observe who's here. Okay, I'd like you to choose someone, and again, I'm not going to ask you to go walk up to them, say anything, hug them, whatever. But I would like you to choose someone who you've just observed is here, who you know or, or you have a feeling that you don't see eye to eye with them. On some area, maybe you draw the line differently on certain issues of God-honoring behavior or, or your approach or whatever it might be, what I've talked about today. Even if you've gone like, I don't know what you're talking about today, Luke. I admit it's I mean, a little muddled, but choose someone who you, you, so you know you probably don't see quite eye to eye. And what I'd like to ask you to do, you know, to name them or anything, I'd like to ask you to pray for them, pray God would bless them, and then ask God 
to help you become more like them in some way that they are like Jesus. Does that make sense? Whoever it is that's come to mind, ask God to help you become more like them in some way they are like Jesus. So let's just do that for a minute. And then as you continue praying, I want you to do one more thing. Ask God to show you how they are like Jesus in a way you hadn't seen before. And just thank God for that. Father, I want to thank you for the fact that in this church community, uh, we're not necessarily a group of people, all of whom think identically on all things, um, because the risk in that is that we, we're all missing something about the heart of God, the character of Jesus. Um, but Father, protect us from thinking of one another in such a way that is, is born of, of insecurity or of pride, thinking that if, if, uh, if I think of myself as better than another, that I'll somehow feel better. Because, Lord, we all know that we fall short. We all know, Lord, that we are not like Jesus in, in the way that we want to be. Father, I just pray this morning that as we have prayed for one another and, and asked you, God, to, to grow us more like Jesus in a way that we see in others, even people we might disagree with or, 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 or rub, rub up against in, in some way. Um, I pray that you would assure us this morning, Father God, of your wonderful, um, immense, unconditional love for us. And I thank you, God, that the message in this passage is ultimately that we, we are in the middle of a process of becoming more like you, but in the meantime, you have made us right with you already. Father, that you have already washed away all of our sins. Father, that you have, um, you have completely cleansed us. You have made us 
such that we don't have to earn in any way, whether it be by doing good with the freedoms we have or whether it be by living your standards. We don't have to earn our, our, our righteousness by what we do, but that when we choose to trust in you, Lord God, with our whole heart, that the cross of Jesus is enough. That your blood has washed us and made us clean. Father, I thank you so much for your grace. I thank you so much that you are the same God yesterday, today, and forever. That the same God who brought the, the Israelites out of Egypt is the same God who has rescued us from slavery to sin. Help us to grow in love and humility with one another, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.